Well, Sarah said, you know, I miss most of you guys, <laughs> too. <laughs> I, th- I think it's funny. Uh, I'd like to say welcome to you, no matter where you're watching us from at this point, whether it is Santa Maria or Napomo or Lompoc or Bandenberg Air Force Base or Belgium or Arizona or Utah or Texas or Colorado, just welcome to all of you. Uh, we do most of our stuff like this through an app. It's called Uversion. And if you would like to download Uversion, you would click on More and then Events after you have it downloaded. And we will come up in your phone if you're local. If not, you type in the zip code of 93455. And we will come up and you'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything we're going to go through today. Uh, you'll even get those little things to connect to the Zoom calls that are later today in that. And then maybe we can all find a way to connect a little bit better. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. If you would like to and are so inclined, you can stand for the reading of God's Word exactly where you are. And this is Acts chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. And it says, When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And this is when we say we rejoice because this is the good news. Uh, let's pray. Father, this morning, uh, we thank you for being such a gracious God that allows us to go through trials and hardships, but you use those things to draw us closer to you. And Father, even in the midst of where we are with the coronavirus and COVID-19, there's probably a lot of fear and anxiety. And I ask that your spirit would come and it would comfort us in the midst of it. And ultimately, in the end, you would teach us to trust you more and more for your guidance and your goodness and your grace, because you are good and continue to be good to us. Amen. All right, so you can sit down no matter uh, where you are. We are back this week in Acts. This is Acts chapter 16. If you want to open your Bibles there, it'll be a great place to start. And today we're going to finish out Acts 16. And we're just going to kind of walk through it like a story. Some people like it when we do the story. This is kind of like story time out of the scriptures. Now, so far in the last few weeks in Acts 16, you have seen Paul and Silas. They start just kind of wandering around these different areas as God kind of leads leads them, but doesn't tell them specifically where to go. They end up in Asia Minor, walking around. Then they get called over to Macedonia. They end up in this city called Philippi, expecting maybe to find a few people, but they don't. So they decide, let's go outside the city to the riverside, and there we'll probably find enough men to have a synagogue, a place of prayer. But when they get to that river, they don't find any men at all. What they find is a group of women. And now most people at this time that were men would have just walked away and said, oh, we need to find the other men. But through God's leading and God's spirit, Paul doesn't do that. He stays and he speaks the gospel to these women. And they believe and a new ministry endeavor takes place that's really unheard of. So what happens now in Acts 16 is they're going back to that riverside, back to that place of prayer, maybe even going to meet more of the women who are coming to that place. Acts 16, starting in verse 16, says, As we were going to the place of prayer, that's that place by the riverside, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now I'm going to recap what we talked about two weeks ago in this so we're on the same page. When it says she had a spirit of divination, in the Greek text, that is literally translated as a spirit of python and what that means is she was possessed by the whatever possessed the oracle at delphi 
And in Philippi at this time, there was the oracle of Delphi. And she was kind of a slave to people who would ask her questions. And some spirit would come upon her, and she would prophesy about the future. And what it's telling you is whatever possessed this oracle at Delphi also possessed this young slave girl. And the owners of the slave girl are thrilled by that because they can make money off of her. And that worship of Delphi is very important in Acts 16. In verse 17, it says, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, and the word annoyed there really means grieved. It means troubled in his spirit, where he gets so full he has to do something about it. He turned and said to the spirit, so to the spirit, not the girl, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Paul, he doesn't question or challenge whether the spirit's real. He knows it's real. He just knows it isn't of God. Now, to recap, she says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Into this cultural context of what's important that's taking place here, some people read this and they say, why wouldn't Paul want her help? If you have a demon or the oracle at Delphi saying, follow Paul and Silas, listen to what they tell you. That should be like a good thing. Like last week I, or two weeks ago, I said, if you open a donut shop and someone opens a donut shop next to yours and they stand out in front of their donut shop every day saying, don't buy my donuts, buy his donuts. They're better. Wouldn't you want something like that? Well, again, in the cultural context of what's taking place here, when she says these men are servants of the Most High God, It did not mean to the people in Philippi, Jesus, or the God of Israel. It could have meant to them Zeus or Dionysus or whoever was the chief god of their pantheon at that given time. It could have been Python, which we would call Pythia. When she says, they proclaim to you the way of salvation, it would not mean eternal life or relationship with God. It would simply mean health or prosperity or rescue from some sort of disaster, like uh, the COVID-19 or something like that. So Paul makes this spirit come out of her, and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. He doesn't say, I command you in the name of the Most High God to come out of her. He uses the name Jesus, and what that does is culturally speaking to exactly where they are. He sets aside all of their gods and their oracles and their powers to proclaim this name of Jesus. Now, it sounds really great, but this is what happens next, verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and are disturbing our city. Disturbing our city is very important. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them. They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he, that's the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, after not much happening in Acts 16, a whole lot of wandering, Taya just goes bonkers. Everything just kind of cuts loose. And we've talked about before, Paul and Silas have been set apart by God. God's Spirit is sending them out on this missionary journey to talk about the good news of who God is in His rescue of the world. And yet, they get arrested for doing something good, for helping people. And whoever the people are who own this slave girl, when Paul sets her free, they realize they have lost their easy income. 
Now, when I was a kid growing up, there were these things called vending machines that people would use a lot. And my mom and my stepdad used to hang out at the bowling alley. One of the only memories I had of having any fun at the bowling alley growing up is when someone taught me how to take a nickel with a big old hammer and you would bang it into the size of a quarter and it would work in the vending machine. You either get candy or you could hit the change return button and it wouldn't give you your busted up nickel. It would give you new real money back, not your busted up nickel. And I don't think I was really old enough to understand all the nuances of it. I knew technically it wasn't okay, but it worked. And it lasted for a few weeks of this ill-gotten game before somebody figured out and fixed the machine. And in the end, it, when they fixed the machine, it took away one of my joyful memories of the bowling alley. Other than uh, sometimes I would jump off the tables there and grab onto the chandeliers. I got in a lot of trouble for that. So that wasn't really fun. But when, when my nearly free money went away, I was a little bit angry. Because someone took away what I had convinced myself was mine, even though it was wrong. The people here, they were exploiting this young girl for gain, and they get angry. They get angry in this, and they're like, that's not cool. You took our way way to make money. But what they do then is they accuse Paul and Silas of something that's only partly true. They go to the magistrates, and they say, they abdicate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They don't go and say, Paul and Silas healed our slave girl and stole away our our slave girl so we can't make any more money. What they say is, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Now first off, I feel a little bad for Paul and Silas in this moment because they get a lot of vehemence for setting this girl free. And this has kind of really been the plight of God's people throughout the ages. People have wrongly spoken about them, judged them, tried to kill them for ages. So here, why, as soon as Paul and Silas, as soon as they say they are Jews, are they immediately stripped naked, beaten, and thrown into jail? No trial, just, oh, you're Jewish? Jail. Well, the slave owners, they're very crafty. They know at this time, in this part of the world, there's a lot of anti-Semitism, and it's very high and very rampant. Uh, One year before this event, the emperor Claudius had all of the Jews that he could find expelled from the city of Rome for a period of 12 years. It went from January AD 41 to January AD 53. Suetonius, when he writes about this, he says it happened since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, and Crestus is the word for Christ. It means they kept talking about Jesus. So it could have been the Jewish people were angry at the Christians who thought they were Jewish, and they said, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of us, and they kept having all of these instigations with each other, and Claudius was like, I'm done with all of you. You're all out of the area. So at this time, it's very in vogue to be against Jewish people because the emperor didn't like them or Christians. So what they accuse Paul and Silas of is not taking away their income by healing their slave, they accuse them of proselytizing, of advocating what they say is customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And what gets invoked is religious and political prejudice. And their accusations are really only partly true. I mean, technically, advocating Judaism was not illegal, it just wasn't very acceptable. Philippi, it is a Roman colony. It stood as a place that anyone and everyone who traveled east out of Rome would end up going through Philippi. The city itself was founded by veterans after wars from the previous century, and they are fiercely proud of their Roman citizenship. Much like if you walked into a VA today and you tried to belittle America, you may not walk out. You may get drug out, but you may not walk out. 
Philippi not only wanted but needed to keep up its Roman standards and culture. And Paul and Silas are clearly teaching things that went against that. Like uh, the Rome would talk about the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace that came at the end of a sword. And Paul and Silas would talk about the peace that came in the name of Jesus. Uh, They would talk about worshiping Jesus as God overall, when in Rome you were supposed to worship Caesar as Lord. The slave girl's owners know exactly what to say to bring about their desired result to get their revenge. Paul and Silas get beaten, stripped naked, and thrown in jail. How they get thrown in jail comes after they are beaten with rods. These magistrates will call in the jailer and they will say, put them in jail and to keep them safely. Safely does not necessarily mean safely like it means in our minds. It doesn't mean don't let them die. What it really simply means in this culture is don't let them escape. You keep them safely in the jail. Typically being a jailer at this time would have been a reward for a life well lived in service of Rome as a soldier. It's an easier post when you get a little bit older. Most people didn't care if somebody died in custody. In Roman jails, the whole purpose was to hold you until trial. And after the trial, you'd either be sent to forced labor, pay a fine, or killed. Usually killed because they just wanted to get rid of people. But jail wasn't a place where you got thrown in jail for 20 years. It was just a place where you awaited to get to the place of your trial. And the jails typically didn't take care of you or feed you. People around you had to come and take care of you. And so in jails, a lot of jailers got their way to make money by having other people come in and bribe you to help out the people you liked that were in the jail. This is this guy's life. Now, Roman jails are notoriously worse than being uh, maybe even put into forced labor. And the jailer must have some irritation or something that's going on because what happens is he doesn't just put them in jail. It says he puts them in the innermost cell, and then he puts them in stocks, which means they would have been chained. The innermost part of a prison in the first century in Rome is not a nice place. It's a little bit lower than the rest of the prison. It is the place where all of the human waste would run downhill and accumulate, that inner place. And yes, it's as bad as it sounds, and it probably smells even worse than it sounds. And then they're put in stocks. And stocks are these things where they, it puts your body in a position that it naturally does not want to go into. And so it hurts every movement you make, every breath you take. It hurts as your legs are pushed in these holes in your arms and your, and your head. So Paul, pillar of the New Testament church, writes more than 50% of the New Testament. Someone we all look up to, and rightly so, is sitting in this place because of the calling of Jesus. Sitting in human waste with his body being stretched and contorted in all of these terrible ways. And we never preach about this and then tell people, oh, don't you want to follow Jesus as well? He loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. You could be just like Paul. We don't say things like that. And these verses are something that proponents of prosperity theology usually shy away from. But this is the opposition of what preaching the gospel can bring in our lives. The jailer, he doesn't do this by orders from the magistrates. He does this by desire. Now, what happens now is something that we would not react like. We would typically be angry at God. God, why would you do this to me? I was speaking for you, and you let me get thrown in jail. This is terrible. This is all your fault. What do Paul and Silas do? Well, verse 25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's their response. And the prisoners were listening to them. 
probably because they have nothing else to do. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, there is a lot to this as well. So let's start with this singing at midnight. We, we don't know what songs Paul and Silas were singing. It could have been, same God that set the captives free. We, we don't know what it was. Uh, but Luke is reminding all of the readers of Acts that Paul and Silas are singing because they believe that they are where they are because God has a purpose. And what it tells us is they're not just worshiping God in their suffering, but they actually worship God for their suffering. It is about confidence in who God is. Like in the middle of this pandemic we're going through, are we worshiping God in the places where we are because we know in the end God has a purpose for all things? We are told the other prisoners are listening to them sing. And I, and I keep saying, you know, again, they probably had nothing else to do. It may be that all the prisoners were end up moved to this inner part of the prison and locked up in stocks just to make the jailer's life easier. But during their singing, an earthquake hits. And Luke is not some backwards country bumpkin where he thinks that every earthquake is a miracle of God. He knows the difference between what is natural and what is unnatural, meaning a miracle. Like last year, we did this summer series called I Believe in Miracles. Miracles are outside the bounds of nature. That's why we call them miracles. In this miracle, the earthquake hits. All the cell doors open. All the chains fall off. Hopefully, we can all agree that's not normal. All the prisoners agree that's not normal. But this also speaks to the cultural place of where these people are. In Greek tradition, the followers of Dionysus, one of the many gods that they had in their pantheon, had this tradition of divine escapes, where prison doors would fly open and chains would fall off and they'd escape. Just like Paul casts out the evil spirit from the girl, the spirit of Python or Pythia, here God, again, is showing what he can do to rescue and save his people. God God can heal the slave girl, but God can also tangibly release his prisoners to show his strength. Culturally, this becomes necessary for what happens. And instead of running away like the followers of Dionysus would do, Paul and Silas, they stay. Because what God is doing in their midst is more important than their own skin. So the jailer sees the doors are open, and he's about to take his life. Because if you let some prisoners free, you didn't keep them safely, well, your life would have been demanded instead. So Paul cries out to him. Again, as I said, historically speaking, in these major Roman metropolitan areas like Philippi, jailers in these places were almost always former, highly decorated Roman soldiers who, as this gift of retirement, were given jails to run. This guy has probably never lost a battle. He has probably never taken a step back in a fight. He is probably highly, highly decorated because Rome is not known for handing out daisies and stickers to people through a brutal, tyrannical regime. 
as a deterrent to any type of rebellion. They would go in and just murder everybody. There are places in history where they have crucified thousands, up to 20,000 people in a couple given days, men, women, and children. They would stick them to the sides of cities. They would stick them on crosses and line roads with them so people who didn't live in the city would know you don't rebel against Rome. They are not sweet people. And I think probably just like today, the jailer could have even had some PTSD because of where he has been in his life and the nature and the brutal things he had seen. Like today, we have soldiers that return from uh, Afghanistan or Iraq, men, women, young, old, and many times they come back and they don't know what to do with all the things they've seen. They can become aggressive and violent. They can't get out of their heads the thing that they've done or the things that they have seen. And the jailer seems to follow this pattern a little bit because he responds to an order of put them in jail by instead torturing them and belittling them and dehumanizing them in a way that is bitter and angry and violent. And what you will see is even into that darkness, that horrible place, Jesus is going to step in and save him. And I believe it's why Paul and Silas were there in the first place. They said to the jailer, you know, they didn't run. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, this is amazing. And when we read it, though, we many times think it's something else is happening than what is actually happening. In a cultural understanding, when the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? He's not asking about following Jesus or anything like that. But I think it's the precursor to it. I mean, preachers like me, to John Bunyan, to Augustine, to Martin Luther, all look at the jailer's question as what precedes salvation by trusting Jesus. This guy doesn't have an understanding right now of heaven and hell or sin and grace. Uh, N.T. Wright, when he talks about this verse, he correctly translates the idea behind it. Because the jailer is essentially saying, will you please tell me what I can do to get out of this mess? this mess that I have found myself in. I'm stuck in the middle of this jail. And this is really was kind of the precursor to when God saves people. We realize that we are not in control, that we're not in charge. I've had people come into my office for marriage counseling and saying, what can we do to get out of this mess? And my first advice is stop worshiping each other and worship Jesus first. Maybe one out of five people listen to that advice. I have had people come to my office who have had issues at work where they're doing a bunch of stupid things. What do I do? Stop worshiping yourself. Worship Jesus. Maybe one out of ten people listen to me in that. The answer that the jailer gets is more than he was asking or bargaining for. And just as the same thing happens for all of us when we really ask, God, how do we get out of this mess that we ourselves have made? Paul takes the jailer's question, just like God takes our questions, and he deepens it to a place where the overarching answer is something the jailer didn't even know he was asking, but in the end, he realizes he needs. Like from a Christian worldview, we see the mess in the world around us from the global fact of human rebellion and idolatry and sin. And if we really stewarded the world the way God called us to, if we didn't rebel against him, there wouldn't be human trafficking or pollution or economic exploitation or whatever else is the current issue today. We would be a people who honor him and love him and walk with him in ways that bring life to lifeless places, hope to hopeless places, grace to graceless places. As Christians, we're supposed to be able to have this unique perspective to see the world the way that it is, not with blinders on, but actually look at it and see the mess that it is. But we also get to have the hopeful expectation 
of what God will do when he spreads his rule and his reign everywhere. Because God uses us as his people to do that, to speak into those dark places. And God will do this not through murder and conquest, but through helping others know what we must do to be saved from this mess that we all have made. And this is why Paul's answer to this man's question is so deep on so many levels. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. See, the answer is addressing the guy's specific question of the jailer, but it's also going to what stands beneath his question. This is the classic summary of the gospel, which is the good news, that we can all be saved from the mess that we have made by running ourselves away from who he is and what the mess of the world is made of itself. Jesus' death and resurrection, God restores us to himself by trusting in God's provision over us. And the result of the gospel will bring changes to our lives. So we love and worship and live in waves that reflect who he is. Paul's letter to the Philippians that he will write a couple years after this, in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, he will say this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So who is truly the, the most high God? Well, it's Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will write to those people in Rome, in Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That is the message. And the jailer and his entire household believes, and everyone gets baptized because that's how you did it back then. It's like the one person believes, what's this? We're going with that. We're going to believe. We're going to go. It's amazing. It's, it's interesting also to understand how this happens because it's portrayed differently than it typically happens in America today. Because in America today, we assume the guy's got everything figured out at this point, but he doesn't. You know, the guy at this point isn't getting in touch with his inner spiritual self. He probably isn't really committed himself to a life of worship and prayer and, and good works. It's, it's, he doesn't even have his theology figured out in this because he's a Roman jailer. He's lived his entire life in this other culture. He's just beginning to learn. He's got lots to work through, but what he does get is that it is about recognizing and acknowledging and believing Jesus as Lord of our lives. Because the Romans would recite, Caesar is Lord. Now it is Jesus being Lord. And Jesus brings peace, not by military conquest, but by coming in and rescuing our broken and destroyed hearts and lives. Now Luke will bring this all to a close. Uh, Starting in verse 35, he will say this. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Now we'll talk about that next week a bit when we talk about the gospel and the government. Verse 39, so they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. 
You may ask, well, if that's the case, why didn't Paul and Silas speak about their Roman heritage at the beginning before they got beaten? Well, they may have. Have you ever been in a mob? But when someone starts saying, nobody hears what someone's saying in a mob. Everybody just kind of runs the mob direction. This still happens to kids like in in the deep south or inner cities where they're walking over from school and and some people will pull them over and throw in the back of a car. I'm I'm walking home from school and nobody really listens to this. I think what you need to see in Acts is Luke wants us to see that God's servants, we are not protected from suffering in the world that comes with the proclamation of the good news. The gospel will offend people because it calls us to cease being our own gods. It calls us to cease ruling our own worlds. It it calls us to stop holding on to all of our anger and grudges. What it calls us to do is trust Jesus for our salvation. Now, in the end, yes, God is going to bring justice. God is not mocked. But too often, we prefer the vindication without the process. Like N.T. Wright, he says, too often you'd rather have the crown without the cross. But that's not the way of the kingdom of God. The way of the kingdom of God, you look at Jesus' life. Jesus was crucified for us. You look at Paul's life. It is dramatically displayed when he lived for the gospel in all of these places. I mean, this is the first time that Paul was brought before Roman officials, and it turns out okay. He eventually is going to be in Rome and get beheaded in Rome after being arrested. Spoiler I know, but whatever. The understanding of Acts is that times of heartache and times of suffering aren't always just times of sadness. They can also be times of rejoicing, even times of singing songs while stuck or bound up in jail or stuck and bound up in your homes. Acts is showing that God is still working, even at midnight, turning the world right side up again. Some, some of you today, are maybe you're like the jailer. Maybe you've done some horrible stuff. Maybe you're like the slave girl and some horrible things have been done to you. Maybe you're bitter and angry about the things that have happened in your life. Maybe you're bitter and angry about things you participated in. The beauty of the gospel is that God gets to step in, and God does step in, and he rescues and saves us from that anger, from that aggression, from that bitterness, that God continues to step into messy places, and he saves and he calls us out. He ransoms us out. But the beauty is when we understand that, we are supposed to look back to the places that we were because we know people who are still stuck in those places. And God calls us to take this grace that we have learned and step back into those places again. He uses us as his hands and feet, as his ambassadors to go back into those places. And it is a beautiful thing to see God save others. What the gospel does here is it takes a man who is going to commit suicide because he had failed in keeping the prisoners safe and in, And yet Paul, who had been tortured by this same man, refused to let him kill himself. That is the grace that invades all of these dark places where God steps in and says, you are mine. Guys, there are so many false things in our world, yet God reveals his truth that saves us from this mess. And that is the beauty of the gospel that God takes us exactly where we are. We do not have to get cleaned up to come to love and follow Jesus. He meets us where we are. Even if we have jacked up views of theology, He still saves us where we are because our salvation is based upon Him and what He has done. And so we trust Him. We trust Him. Uh, The band's going to come up. They're sitting six feet apart in this room from each other, (laughs) somewhere in all this. But as they do, I want to invite you, if, if you're in your homes and you are so inclined to want to take communion, you can do that. 
I mean, communion at Element, when we meet together, we do this every week as a reminder of what God did to rescue and save us. It's you, you take a cracker and you, and you snap and break that cracker because it reminds us of Christ's body that was broken for us. And then we will dip it in the wine or the grape juice because it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me, that God has stepped into our dark places because of what he has done, because of his own rescue. And then he calls and takes us as his children. And he sends us to step into other dark places as well, where we get to speak of his saving and redeeming love and redeeming grace because he is that good. Stepping into our mess and rescuing us where we are. Guys, if you need prayer, like we say here every week, uh, you can log on to the prayer call tonight at 6 p.m. You can send a prayer request to connectedourelement.org. If you're watching on YouTube on a computer, you can make comments on the side. You can type in a prayer request right there, and people will pray for you right now where that is. We are a people who need prayer. We need to pray for one another because we are a people who constantly make messes of our lives. And our God steps into our mess to rescue and save us, not just from the mess, but exactly from ourselves and our sin and offer such deep grace to us as a people that we get to now walk in. Uh, if you would like to give, you can. You can give online. Uh, you can uh, mail a check, 4890 Bethany Lane, Santa Maria, California, 93455. Uh, that's, that's our mailing address. As I said, we are still giving to all of our church planters and missionaries we support and to a lot of different things around town right now, especially with COVID-19 and people with jobs and things uh, like that. So we're trying to help out there. Uh, but also, I would encourage you, if you are newer, to log on to the Zoom call at 1 p.m. Ask us questions about who we are. We'd love to meet you, talk to you. Uh, If you have been around Element for a while, make up a Zoom call with a bunch of different friends and get together and just all talk at once. It's amazing that the speakers just go, the entire. but it's, it's awesome and it's great. We get to still connect to one another because God calls us to do that. And that reminder of who he is sends us back into places where with one another, we speak his grace and his goodness and his great salvation. And so we remind one another of that, that we are a people saved by his grace from the messes that we have made, that our God is graceful and he is good. And let's remember that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would continue to teach us and remind us what your grace means. That so often we have this idea that we have created a mess and that you will not love us because of this mess that we have made or this mess that we have jumped into. And yet that is so untrue. You come to us exactly where we are because we cannot get out of our own mess. But the mess that we create is not just something that we run into in our lives. It's, it's buried deep inside of us and it's called sin. And you not only will bring purpose to all that we've gone through, You will restore our hearts and lives from the devastation that sin has brought into them. Father, there are times and places where we all go through hard things. And yet you can take those hard things and hard places to bring glory to yourself, to bring a greater understanding of salvation to those who are around us, and such great goodness to your people. So teach us to trust you 
and live in the great goodness and rescuing salvation that you not only promised for for millennia to bring, but you actually did bring to bear in the person of Jesus. So teach us to trust Jesus, to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, to believe in our hearts that you raised your son from the dead and you take away our sin and restore us to life and we get to walk with you every single day. Have us remember the gospel in all that we do. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.